across our nation, Americans are witnessing an explosive movement known as Civil Rights. From the picketing of the White House to the violence in Harlem, streets are clogged with angry, emotion-charged people. These people claim that the courts and the legislative processes are not adequate in solving racial problems. They maintain the problem can only be solved by constant strife, flaunting laws, ignoring court orders, jamming streets, and disrupting normal community life. Whether this method of dramatizing the problem promotes racial harmony, we will not attempt to answer. Whether the millions of dollars spent on organization, travel, and bail for these demonstrations could more productively have been spent training Negroes to qualify for jobs or starting businesses to employ and serve Negroes, you must decide for yourself. In this film, we will deal solely with the question of whether the Communist Party, from behind the scenes, dominates, coordinates, directs, finances, or participates in the civil rights movement. Or are these charges merely a smokescreen raised by those who wish to impede what some call social progress? History offers scant evidence that those who accept communist help ever extricate themselves from communist control. Leaders of groups in some 31 countries swallow the tempting bait of cooperation with the communists. Without exception, these misguided leaders wound up in a grave while their countrymen were enslaved. This is the legacy of the fly trying to exploit the spider. What is the strategy communists have used to enslave one billion human beings? Let's look at history. Divide and then conquer best describes the master plan that has succeeded time and time again. Communists use every conceivable difference in language, color, race, religion, or economic status to create turmoil, civil disorders, and if possible, civil war. The communists have been immensely successful in manufacturing or magnifying race or class hatred. They have turned Russian against Russian, Chinese against Chinese, Algerian against Algerian, Cuban against Cuban. And now the question is, will they succeed in turning American against American? The communists have been working for over 30 years on mass recruitment of Negroes in the United States. Their efforts have largely failed because Negroes have proved to be loyal Americans. This has not caused the communists to slacken their efforts. They see civil rights as America's Achilles heel and the Negro as sacrificial cannon fodder in a communist instigated revolution. Benjamin Gitlow, who broke with communism after holding the highest party office in this country, told a congressional committee Quote, in the racial civil war the communists envisage, they are sure Negroes will be in the front ranks, the shock troops of the communist revolution. End quote. A vast number of books and pamphlets aimed at Negro Americans have been published by the communists. The official party line was established in the pamphlet American Negro Problems by John Pepper in 1928. Pepper was an alias used by Soviet agent Joseph Pogani, who was sent to the United States by Stalin. In this pamphlet, Pepper stated, quote, The Communist Party recognizes the tremendous revolutionary possibilities of the Negro people. The Negro Communist should emphasize the establishment of a Negro Soviet Republic. End quote. William Z. Foster, for many years chairman of the Communist Party USA, stated in this book, Toward a Soviet America, quote, 
The Communist Party promotes organizations to defend the rights of Negroes. Where no organization exists, the party takes the initiative in forming them. Where they are already in existence and headed by conservative officials, the party builds opposition within them and fights for the revolutionary program. This is called the boring from within policy. End quote. In 1959, the official party doctrine allegedly was changed from creating a separate Negro state to one of full integration, communist style. As usual, the communists work both sides of the street, promising a separate Negro republic or forced integration, whichever is most expedient. Today, as the civil rights movement assumes a major role in American life, receiving enormous amounts of favorable publicity and having a strong emotional appeal to all fair-minded Americans, it becomes an even juicier target for communist exploitation. Listen to the words of Communist Party Chairman Gus Hall in his pamphlet, Which Way, USA, 1964, The Communist View. Quote, In the period ahead, the struggle will proceed on three levels. First, the overall national objective will be to get the civil rights legislation passed by Congress. The second level will be organized struggle for specific objectives. It is the strength displayed in the mass demonstrations that makes it possible to win specific victories. The third level is the continued struggle in the South. The civil rights front is that on which the main battles are being fought today. It must at all times receive our top attention." End quote. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, who has been investigating the communist conspiracy since 1919, told a congressional committee in 1964, Quote, the Communist Party is attempting to use the Negro movement to promote its own interests. In particular, it has sought ways to exploit the militant forces of the Negro civil rights movement. The number of Communist Party recruits from the Negro racial groups is not important. The old communist principle still holds. Communism must be built with non-communist hands. We do know that communist influence does exist in the Negro movement. End quote. Because communism is abhorrent to most Americans, the Reds must form front organizations to recruit, raise funds, and manipulate non-communists. How do you recognize a communist front? Certainly not by its name, because names are chosen that convey a good image to most Americans. Included in the names are such words as peace, freedom, human rights, and democracy. J. Edgar Hoover, in his book, Masters of Deceit, gives several tests to apply to an organization to determine if it is a communist front. Does it feature as speakers known communists or sympathizers? Does it sponsor causes, campaigns, literature, petitions, or other activities sponsored by the party? Does it receive consistent favorable mention in communist publications? Does it represent itself as nonpartisan yet engage in political activities and consistently advocate causes favored by the communists. Using J. Edgar Hoover's criterion, let us look at some of the organizations and leaders of the civil rights movement. One of the most active groups behind the scenes in the South is the Southern Conference Educational Fund, known as SCEF. It is an outgrowth of a previous organization, the Southern Conference for Human Welfare. In 1944, the Special Committee on Un-American Activities characterized the Southern Conference for Human Welfare in these terms. Quote, 
careful examination of its official publication and its activities will disclose that the conference is being used to further Soviet policy. Key posts are in most instances controlled by persons whose record is faithful to the line of the Communist Party. End quote. After being cited in similar terms in 1947, the Southern Conference for Human Welfare did a quick change act and reappeared in 1948 as the Southern Conference Educational Fund, maintaining the same headquarters at the same address, the same publication, the same executive director, and a virtually identical slate of officers. The Senate Internal Security Subcommittee in 1954 described SCEF as the communist transmission belt for the South, the organization through which the communists control non-communist groups. Who are SCEF's leaders, who were described as being faithful to the line of the Communist Party? The executive director of SCEF is Dr. James Dombrowski. In sworn testimony before the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee, Paul Crouch, for many years the top U.S. communist in the South, declared, quote, Dr. Dombrowski told me on several occasions that he preferred to be called a left socialist rather than a communist, that he could serve the revolutionary movement better under the socialist label than the communist, end quote. Asked if that was a customary practice among top-flight Soviet operators, Crouch answered, yes, sir. Dombrowski has approximately 60 citations of affiliations with various communist fronts or endeavors. Carl Braden travels extensively for SCEF as its field secretary. His wife, Anne, edits SCEF's newspaper, which has been declared subversive by the House Committee on Un-American Activities. In 1954, Braden was convicted and sentenced to 15 years in prison for bombing the home of a Negro and attempting to place the blame on whites. He was released when the U.S. Supreme Court, under Chief Justice Earl Warren, declared all state sedition laws void. During the trial, Carl and Ann Braden were identified as communist agents by Alberta Ahern, an undercover FBI agent who was surfaced to testify against the Bradens. Mrs. Ahern later told a Senate committee that Carl Braden was a Southern District organizer for the Communist Party. The Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth has recently been appointed president of SCEF. According to federal government files, Shuttlesworth has been involved in seven Communist Front activities since 1960. The interlinking structure of the civil rights movement is demonstrated by the fact that Shuttlesworth serves as a link between the Communist SCEF and Martin Luther King's organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Shuttlesworth is vice president of King's organization. Shuttlesworth replaced Aubrey Williams as president of SCEF. Williams was identified by two former communists in sworn testimony before the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee as a member of the Communist Party. Federal government records show that Williams has at least 43 citations for participation in communist fronts or activities. Until it was closed by the state of Tennessee, the Highlander Folk School was closely connected with SCEF and served as a training school for the communists in the fields of civil rights and labor agitation. The Highlander Folk School was founded in 1932 by Miles Horton, Don West, and previously discussed communist James Dombrowski. Paul Crouch, former top communist functionary, testified that 
Quote, the Highlander Folk School is operated ostensibly as an independent labor school, but actually working in close cooperation with the Communist Party. End quote. The co-founder of the Highlander Folk School was Don West, identified in the hearings of the House Committee on Un-American Activities May 6, 1949, as the district director of the Communist Party of North Carolina. West has been cited 18 times as having belonged to communist fronts or activities. The most famous meeting ever to take place at the Highlander Folk School occurred over Labor Day weekend, 1957. Assembled for a three-day training session were the key civil rights leaders in the South. The meetings were directed by Reverend John Thompson, chaplain, University of Chicago, who has 36 citations for participation in communist front activities. Entertainment at this meeting was provided by folk singer Pete Seeger, composer of such songs as Where Have All the Flowers Gone? and the modern lyrics for We Shall Overcome. Long prominent in the civil rights movement, Seeger has been identified in sworn testimony before the House Committee on Un-American Activities as a member of the Communist Party. In the lower left-hand corner of this photo taken at the convention is Abner Berry, who for over 20 years has been an official on the Central Committee of the Communist Party. Miles Horton, founder and director of the school, is behind and to the right of Berry. Next to Horton is identified communist Aubrey Williams, a director of the school and past president of the communist SCEF. Martin Luther King is sitting next to Williams. The highlight of the convention was the closing speech delivered by the Reverend Martin Luther King. King is the founder and president of the Southern Christian Leadership Council, commonly referred to as SLIC. When the New Orleans police raided SCEF headquarters in 1961, they discovered copies of correspondence between King and SCEF and between SCEF members concerning King. A letter from King to Communist Anne Braden dated October 7, 1959, urges Anne and her husband Carl the Communist Party organizer in the South, to become permanently associated with King's organization. Another letter, dated September 21, 1960, from Carl Braden to a fellow communist, James Dombrowski, states that King is anxious for leadership and staff meetings between the two organizations so that they can work together more effectively. Another communique between these two communists indicates that Braden was writing the press releases for King's organization. King is shown here speaking to a slick meeting. The three in the background are three of the communists who run SCEF, Carl and Ann Braden and James Dombrowski. Shown here is a check to Martin Luther King from the SCEF. The check is signed by James Dombrowski. Among other occasions in which King has shown poor judgment include King's using the mailing plates of the National Guardian newspaper to solicit funds. The National Guardian was characterized by the House Committee on Un-American Activities as, quote, a virtual official propaganda arm of Soviet Russia, end quote. Manning Johnson, who left the Communist Party after discovering that the Communists only intended to enslave the Negro, had this to say to a government body concerning King. Quote, the communists are praising King to the highest, and they are daily quoting some of his speeches which express more or less what they say. I wonder who is giving him the party line. End quote. 
In a sworn affidavit given on September 28, 1963, and later entered in the congressional record, ex-FBI counterspy Carl Prussian said this about King. Quote, I, Carl Prussian, a former counterspy for the Federal Bureau of Investigation from 1947 to 1960, do hereby swear under oath and penalty of perjury that from the years 1954 through 1958, I attended five county committee meetings of the Communist Party of Santa Clara County, California. I further swear and attest that at each and every one of the aforementioned meetings, one Reverend Martin Luther King was always set forth as the individual to whom communists should look and rally around in the communist struggle on the many racial issues. I hereby also state that Martin Luther King has either been a member of or wittingly has accepted support from over 60 communist fronts, individuals, and or organizations which give aid to or espouse communist causes." End quote. When asked about communist influences in the civil rights movement, King replied, quote, there are as many communists in the movement as there are Eskimos in Florida, end quote. Perhaps many will put more credence in the statement by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, who said, quote, Martin Luther King is the most notorious liar in the United States, end quote. Another of King's plentiful errors in judgment was brought to light in October 1962 when it was revealed a communist was serving in the top administrative post in King's organization. The man's name was Hunter Pitts O'Dell, who, counsel for the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee revealed, was the Communist Party organizer for New Orleans. When this information gained notoriety, King acted immediately and transferred the communist to his New York office. Another notable individual employed by King is Bayard Rustin, who was King's secretary from 1955 to 1960. Before World War II, Rustin was a member and paid organizer for the Young Communist League and a field secretary for Corps. During World War II, he served 28 months in federal prison for refusing to do military service. In 1953, Rustin pleaded guilty to a sex perversion charge in Pasadena, California. In 1957, while employed by King, he attended the National Convention of the Communist Party. In 1958, according to congressional sources, Bayard Rustin went to Russia to participate in the communist-sponsored Non-Violent Action Committee Against Nuclear Weapons. Rustin accompanied King to Sweden for King's acceptance of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. Rustin is probably best known for his work organizing the March on Washington in 1963. In fact, A. Philip Randolph, the leader of the march, claimed, quote, Mr. Rustin is Mr. March on Washington himself, end quote. Randolph, a former Socialist Party candidate, has had an active career himself. Randolph, here giving the keynote speech for the March on Washington, has 20 Communist Front affiliations. Another prominent individual in the civil rights movement is Robert Williams. Williams was a national sponsor of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, whose most infamous alumnus is the late Lee Harvey Oswald. Williams fled to Cuba to avoid arrest by the FBI on a kidnapping charge. From Cuba, he broadcasts over a station known as Radio Free Dixie, urging Negroes to armed rebellion with emphasis on the assassination of policemen. 
Williams, whose book, Negroes with Guns, has a prologue by Martin Luther King, and which received an enthusiastic review from Ann Braden in SCEF's newspaper, has recently formed an Afro-American government in exile, with headquarters in the Hotel Capri, Havana, Cuba. This is The Crusader, an eight-page monthly newsletter published by Williams in Cuba. In the paper, Williams makes it clear that not only is he a communist, but a black Muslim sympathizer. On page five, he says, quote, It is revolting to watch the grand parade of good Negro puppets who are being manipulated by their racist masters to perform monkey shines of derision against the black Muslims. End quote. One of the most highly publicized civil rights organizations is the Congress of Racial Equality, commonly known as CORE. CORE began in 1942 as an offshoot of another organization, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which urged its members to, quote, join political movements which aim at the replacement of private capitalism by a system of collective ownership, end quote. Until recently, the national executive director of CORE was James Farmer, Farmer previously was a field secretary for the Student League for Industrial Democracy, which formerly called itself the Intercollegiate Socialist Society. He later served as race relations secretary for Fellowship of Reconciliation, which, in addition to working to abolish free enterprise, urged Americans not to serve in World War II. Farmer serves on the board of directors of Nation Magazine whose editor, Carrie McWilliams, has belonged to virtually every major communist front of the past 30 years. Martin Luther King is on CORE's advisory board, but he is not the only advisor who has shown poor judgment. Following is a numerical list of citations from federal government records of communist fronts or activities participated in by CORE's advisory board. Roger Baldwin, 58 citations. A.J. Musty, 32. A. Philip Randolph, 20. Lillian Smith, 7. Algernon Black, 20. Earl Dickerson, 20. Charles Zimmerman, 14 citations. Also serving on CORE's advisory board is James Baldwin, whose best-selling book, The Fire Next Time, threatens the white population with mayhem. In spite of the fact that American Negroes have a higher standard of living than Russian citizens, Baldwin, writing in a Russian newspaper, said, quote, There are no words to describe the whole horror of the American Negro's life. End quote. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, known as SNCC, is the self-proclaimed most radical of the civil rights groups. SNCC is the rallying point for all leftist youth groups such as the Student Peace Union and Students for a Democratic Society, both proclaiming to be merely socialist. Also rallying around SNCC are the Progressive Labor Party, the Trotskyist Young Socialist Alliance, which have both been identified by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover as communist-controlled, and the W.E.B. Du Bois clubs, characterized by Mr. Hoover as, quote, spawned by the Communist Party. End quote. SNCC's Washington, D.C. director, James Monsonis, described SNCC's philosophy towards communists thusly. Quote, I don't think there are any communists on our staff, but I don't consider it relevant anyway. End quote. 
In the South, SNCC has worked closely with and has been financed by the communist SCEF. From December 1961 to June 1963, SCEF gave SNCC at least $10,300. Robert Zellner, an officer of SNCC, was financed by a $5,000 SCEF grant. In a letter to communist James Dombrowski, written on Highlander Folk School stationery, Zellner shows that he fears open identification with SCEF, but wants to work together secretly. In a letter of March 22, 1962, seized in the raid by New Orleans police, communist Anne Braden discusses plans of how to make best use of SNCC with communist James Dombrowski. In another letter dated January 15, 1963, from Dombrowski to another identified communist, William Howard Mellish of Brooklyn, Dombrowski expresses his admiration of SNCC. Quote, The SCEF board has made it clear how much it values the work of SNCC. Personally, I regard SNCC as the youth movement of the integration struggle, and in a way as the youth branch of SCEF. End quote. Since many of the civil rights leaders have shown themselves to be blind or indifferent to communist exploitation, what course is left for those who genuinely want to help the Negro but do not wish to help the communists build communism with non-communist hands? First, it is important that we not blame the Negro unfairly for the communist influence in the civil rights movement. The blame should be placed where it belongs, on the communists. It can be comparatively easy for a handful of carefully trained communists to take over an organization, especially if the organization's members are ignorant of communist tactics. Those sincerely interested in Negro betterment can best help by assisting the Negro in self-help projects. Education, combined with ambition and the free enterprise system, have always been history's only effective cure for poverty. James Hood the first male Negro at the University of Alabama has stated it best, quote, why doesn't the Negro wake up and go about this thing in a more intelligent way? Who benefits from the conflict, the Negro masses or the Negro leaders? There must be some more positive way of achieving first-class citizenship, a way without violence. There must be more time spent in the classroom and less time wasted on picket lines, end quote. Manning Johnson joined the Communist Party to help his people. Years later, he quit in disgust and exposed the truth about the Communist Party in testimony to government committees. The following is part of that testimony. Quote, The Negro leadership should realize that they have a responsibility to guide and inspire their people along the right paths, help them to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, and to work together as a group for cooperation between races. To the end result, they can strengthen their economic and political positions and move on to higher things." End quote. Where does the road ahead lead? Judge for yourself, but remember the words of former communist official Benjamin Gitlow. Quote, of one thing you may be sure, the communists know where they are going, and they are hell-bent on getting there, even if they have to drown the American Negroes in their own blood." End quote.